second semester of my freshman year of college. I was taking modern philosophy, Enlightenment era philosophy, because during the previous semester, my first, I'd taken philosophy 101 and I liked the professor. Lacking direction, like the quintessential freshman I was, I followed him into his upcoming course. And there, in modern philosophy, we were assigned a book titled simply Ethics by an early modern philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. He had been born in the Jewish part of Amsterdam in the year 1632, putting him quite close historically to the first modern philosopher, René Descartes, whose work he studied very closely. Spinoza's family were Portuguese Jews who had fled the Inquisition. In 1670, he published his first book, The Theologico-Political Treatise. And like all truly great works, it was promptly denounced as heretical. His name became an insult, with intellectuals vying to create the greatest distance they could between themselves and this dangerous subversive in a sort of early modern McCarthyism. It was in this way that the word Spinozist first appeared. But after his death, more of his works were published, including the ethics, and thinkers began to respect him a bit more. In fact, so much so that several generations later, the famous philosopher GWF Hegel would say that, quote, you are either a Spinozist or not a philosopher at all. In my early, in my college modern philosophy class, we were warned before meeting Spinoza that we might not find his writing to be all that exciting stylistically, but that it would be worth it. So I gave it a shot. And I did find that the ethics was written in a very formalized, very logical structure with numbered propositions followed by demonstrations and scolia of further logical consequences. He starts the book very modestly by defining eight words. And the seventh of those words is God. Spinoza says, by God, I understand a being absolutely infinite, that is, a substance consisting of an infinity of attributes, of which each one expresses an eternal and infinite essence. Starts off a little technical, just a little bit. Having thought of myself as agnostic, humanist, or mostly just uninterested for most of my life, I didn't make very much of that, and I just kept reading. But I watched Spinoza work, and I watched him build. I saw him start to create this system based on those eight definitions, which he had seemed to just propose humbly as what he was pretty sure most people meant when he said those words. And from that basis, he made his case so tightly and worked so quickly that by the time I read Proposition 14, which poetically reads, except God, no substance can be or be conceived, I lost my mind. I jumped out of my seat on the third floor of the student center. I ran down the hall to the empty meditation room. I locked the door and I sat in the dark until my breathing returned to normal. 
I now think of this as my first religious experience. Spinoza thought and wrote with such clarity and method that I was forced to take him seriously and to reckon with a concept of God that could really mean something to me, which had never happened to me before. It's a simple idea, but it's a radical one, expressed in a single Latin phrase, Deus sive natura, God or nature. It works like this. All things and all people consist of many parts, or as Spinoza calls them, modifications of substance. And those parts themselves consist of parts, which consist of parts. But eventually, we arrive at the realization that somehow things are, that there is a fundamental something or some stuff that everything else is made of. And this is the being, or maybe this is being, which is because it must be, because it can't not be. Because in Spinoza's terms, existence pertains to its essence, its self-caused. From a modern scientific perspective, we might think of this as the universe having created itself in the Big Bang. God or nature is infinitely, and if something infinitely is, buckle up, it cannot be limited in any way by anything. And the only way to not be limited in any way by anything is to be everything. It's right here, it's right now, in every way and anything and everything and everyone present to us is. It's God and its nature. It's the bridge between the two and the recognition that they were never different to begin with. And the ethics controversies don't end there. Spinoza had set his sights on dethroning one of the biggest, most foundational and unspoken assumptions of all European philosophy, dualism. Dualism is the idea that there are two different kinds of existence. Usually it's the material and the ideal, or the material and the spiritual, with the material usually being viewed as corrupt and less than, and often in the hands of the powers that be associated with oppressed people who that system wants to rationalize treating that way. Dualism comes down through the ages by way of thinkers like Plato and Augustine, Descartes and others. Spinoza took direct aim at it and shattered it in negating the distinction between God and nature. In the place of dualism, which generally claims that mind or spirit shapes the world according to its will, Spinoza created what philosophers have come to call parallelism. In that view, the material and the mental, or whatever we're going to call the other thing, they run parallel to each other as layers that push back and forth and mutually condition and reshape each other. To picture this, we can think of in our own lives, 
we can think about how scientists now understand how gut health can affect the mental and how mental states affect bodily well-being. That's one aspect of parallelism in our lives. And from there, Spinoza goes somewhere even more radical, somewhere that some find unsettling, but if we really take the time to understand it, is really a liberatory insight. He observed that since the material and the mental shape each other, and all phenomena are caused by others, he realized that free will must be to some degree an illusion. Some people take that claim in a very edgy direction, making it a nihilistic idea. But Spinoza doesn't do that at all. It isn't the free part of free will that he takes issue with. Instead, the problem is rooting freedom in the will, in the ability to want things. Spinoza tosses out the free will doctrine because he observed what we would describe as habit, sometimes addiction, sometimes conditioning. External forces are always shaping us, what we want, how we avoid, how we react. The volition, the will, is determined. It exists within nature and is caused. Sometimes those factors are healthy for us or ethical for our society, and sometimes they're not. And in our ability to make that distinction, to self-direct it, to reshape it according to our self-understanding and what we want for our world, Spinoza finds our agency. It's in the understanding more fundamentally than the will. He remarks toward the end of the book in Proposition 10 of Chapter 5 in his trademark, almost uh, Vulcan style for the Trekkies in the house. So long as we are not torn by affects contrary to our nature, we have the power of ordering and connecting the affections of the body according to the order of the intellect. To paraphrase and interpret, things are bad for us when they make it harder to perceive our own fundamental needs, but good for us when they help us understand those needs or our healthy desires and act on them. There may, per Spinoza, be too much habit in human nature for the will to be the source of our freedom, but there is freedom yet in wisely arranging our habits of body and mind. It's a hard-won freedom, and it can be partial, but we can grow in it. This system goes beyond simple binaries, just like it transcended dualism. Choices aren't simply good or evil or praised or condemned. They can show growth. Teasing this out, Spinoza says something that I think shows how good of a UU thinker he could have made. The best thing that we can do, as long as we do not have perfect knowledge of our affects, is to conceive correct principles of living, commit them to memory, and apply them constantly. In this way, we can live well in our world. 
we can test our principles and come to know ourselves. We can become more conscious of ourselves as individuals as part of the web of God or nature. This, for Spinoza, is the state of blessedness. We could go on. As is probably clear, I'm a bit of a fan. We could talk about how profound this insight is that true knowledge of something, including ourselves, is knowledge of its or our needs. We can talk, we could talk, about how that can shape our evaluation of social systems, what it means that capitalism needs exploitation and oppression, that our government seems to need ever-expanding military budgets, and that oppressive systems act from necessity, not accident. In another sermon on another day, we can think about what to do with sermons that consistently show harmful, unjust needs, and what needs we should build in to a just society. But for today, let's just meditate for a moment on how this helps us know ourselves as individuals and as the whole human family. It may just be that knowing human nature so long contested is as simple as knowing what we need. It may just be that our wide sweep of needs for food, for community, for clean water, for laughter, integrates us more deeply into our world rather than setting us apart from it. Knowing that being in that world is a real blessing. The wise man, Spinoza says, is hardly troubled in spirit of being conscious of himself and of God and of things, never ceases to be and always possesses true peace of mind. May it be so, and amen. Thank you.